interesting how we kind of go into reflex mode, isn't it? Uh, I haven't heard this. This is the word of the Lord for very long. Like, this is the word of the Lord. Can I say that it is? I totally agree with what Rick said, but uh, I found myself responding just automatic because that's what we did. That's what we did. Now, here's a question for you, and I can pretty much uh, guess the answer. How attractive is your bed to you? If you're anything like me, <laughs> if you're anything like me, you, uh, you kind of do love your bed. Yes? Yeah. Yes? Mostly, mostly. It's a pretty sad sign when you don't love your bed. Uh, but sometimes you find yourself uh, craving just to put your head down. Maybe those uni students among us at the moment who are trying to get those last assignments in, uh, who are trying to uh, cram their heads full of all that knowledge so they can forget it the day after the exam. Uh, but uh, you are craving that rest. But some days it, you just think it'd be so nice just to be able to stop for just a moment, maybe just a few hours a day, a week, but if you're anything like me, sometimes when you stop physically, you're not stopped mentally and you've not stopped emotionally. And so even though physically you're not moving, you're not at rest. And we get pushed around. Life pushes us around. Sometimes those things that drive us are external. You've got a boss leaning over your shoulder. You've got a deadline for an exam. You've got a physical illness. Sometimes those things are internal, that drive to succeed, to prove that you are worth it, to show the world that you are someone, that you are significant. There was a really interesting uh, article, an interview with Madonna, and I think I've quoted this before, uh, where she was asked about her drive to do the next thing. And it came out of the deep sense that she herself was insignificant and not successful. And she needed to prove herself again and again and again. And she said she'd never known rest. Sometimes I think, I don't kind of aspire to be Madonna. My singing and dancing ability uh, doesn't work and I definitely don't look any good in the outfits. Uh, it doesn't work for you. That's an image you didn't need this morning, isn't it? <laughs> but I think this search for rest is pretty universal. And more and more in our society, I think we are conscious of it. What's the standard reply? How are you? Busy. Busy. But in Scripture... There is this theme of rest that flows through and it's tightly related to the idea of peace. The biblical term is shalom, peace, well-being, safety, contentment, security. Who doesn't want those things? Who doesn't want them? But they're so elusive. We have glimpses of them. We catch them occasionally. I can remember 13 weeks of long service leave away camping. Just what a wonderful break it was. And it took about two days to lose the shine and be back into the grind. Does it exist? Is it just something that will be that fleeting catch a glimpse, 
then it's gone. C.S. Lewis uh, wrote a wonderful little, uh, initially it was a sermon, but it, it then appeared as an essay, uh, where he speaks of the weight, uh, in the weight of glory, he speaks of this idea. And he says, we remain conscious of a desire that no natural happiness can satisfy. We want peace, but we never find it. He's talking about something else, but I think it applies to what we're talking about this morning. He says, a man's physical hunger does not prove that a man will get any bread. He may die of starvation on a raft in the Atlantic, but surely a man's hunger does prove that he comes of a race which repairs its body by eating and inhabits a world where eatable substances exist. What he's saying is it makes no sense to crave something that there is absolutely no way you could have it. It doesn't make sense. In the same way, though I do not believe, I wish I did, that my desire for paradise proves that I I will enjoy it, I think it's a pretty good indication that such a thing exists and that some men will. Women too. C.S. Lewis was writing in a different era. But what he's saying is the fact that we long for it is a pretty good indicator that it's actually there. Why would we desire something that was a complete figment of our imagination? And the good news this morning is it is there, and we're going to unpack from Luke chapter 13 under four headings. The promise of rest, the scourge of slavery, paths of liberation, and hope for the future. So there you know where I'm going, and uh, in the next 45, 50 minutes or so, we'll get there. Uh, so that's good. That was a joke, by the way. You're meant to laugh. Okay. Thank you. You guys are just going to wake up. Maybe the, the appeal of your bed is coming forward into this. Um, can I say, Scripture is endlessly deep. Before we even dive into this passage today, on one level, I could preach about a three-minute sermon on this passage. It's pretty simple. But there is such depth that is actually here. And hopefully this morning, uh, you can grasp with me just a little of what God is teaching us. And so keep your eyes out. If you've got your Bibles, be open to Luke 13, verse 10, and let's dive in. It's a story about a healing, and not a massive healing, as far as Jesus' healings go, fairly insignificant. But there is incredible depth Luke starts, he records that on a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues. He doesn't give lots of details. He gives us two things, synagogue and Sabbath. And for anyone who knows anything about the gospel, that should be a warning sign, shouldn't you? What is coming? Conflict is coming, okay? Because as soon as you get Jesus in the synagogue and healings happen, things start getting nasty. The Sabbath, let me backtrack. Rick read to us uh, the account of the Ten Commandments, the ten words that God gave to Moses from Sinai. They're in Exodus 20 and they appear again in Deuteronomy chapter 5. And Rick read to us these words. Six days you will labour and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Israel stopped one in seven. We do that as well, 
or we stop two in seven generally, uh, or maybe that's what we're entitled to, maybe. Uh, but that's our Christian heritage that has come through. Uh, I can remember talking to people in uh, different cultures uh, and they might have one day off a month. They worked seven days a week, they went through. But God established this pattern, six days you work, one day you rest. On it you will not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, male or female servant, not your ox, your donkey, nor any animals, nor foreigner residing in your towns, so that your male and female servants may rest, as you do. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Moses says to them, literally, six days you shall slave. The word there is the same word that is used a little bit further down where Moses reminds Israel, remember that you were slaves. So for six days, their condition of work resembles Egypt. And for one day, it is transformed. They stop one day in seven. Why? They need to remember that God delivered them from the grind of unending toil, from a situation where they knew no rest, where they were driven by circumstance, by taskmasters to build cities not of their own, to harvest fields not of their own. They were slaves and God says, I have set you free and you need to remember that. They need to stop. They need to rejoice in the freedom that is theirs. They need to celebrate the relationship they have with their Redeemer. The goal of work is reminded. You don't work so you can work some more. Ultimately, you work so you can rest. The Sabbath reminds them of that, that it's that sign of rest and peace one day a week where they rest in the security that is theirs in God. They have that safety, that blessing, that absence of conflict, that glimpse, that regular reminder that this is what God had intended them for. And you go back, and if you read the other version of the Ten Commandments, this is one of them where they change between the two. The commandment to honour the Sabbath is the same, but the reason is different. In Exodus, it's tied back to God in creation. And God worked to then enjoy his creation in the seventh day. Israel is liberated and set free, not only to enjoy redemption, but to enjoy creation as well. They are given the blessing that is theirs by God. It's not a day to do nothing. It's not a day to sit in idleness, but it's a day to be in fruitful harmony with God, as Adam and Eve were in the garden. But that kind of rest, even if you are someone who does take a Sabbath, that kind of rest remains elusive, doesn't it? But that's the background. Jesus is in the synagogue on the Sabbath. 
the day that celebrates liberation, the day that celebrates freedom from slavery, the day that rejoices in the relationship and the blessing that comes from God to his people. Which brings us to point two. Verse 11, Luke records, there was a woman there in the synagogue who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. Now, all the medicos amongst you are trying to work out what she's got. Uh, Okay. Uh, Ankylosing spondylitis, it's one option. Doesn't really matter. The fact is that she had been afflicted for 18 years and she could not bend over. She could not straighten up, sorry. And Luke tells us through the Spirit that this woman had been actually satanically afflicted, that she had been afflicted by a spirit. And then down in verse 16, it tells us that she had been held in bondage by Satan. Now, I need to step back for a second and just ask, does that mean when you catch a cold, when you have the flu, uh, if you have a debilitating illness, that it is Satan at work? Is all illness demonic? Well, no, this is not what this is saying. But it is indicative that there is a spiritual side to everything. There is a spiritual malaise that underlies everything else. We need to recognise that God does allow affliction. Do you remember the opening chapters of Job? Where Satan goes before the Lord and asks permission to afflict Job. And God, for his purposes, permits that to happen. And Job loses his health, he loses his wealth, he loses his family. He loses his esteem within the community. The only thing he doesn't lose is his wife, who constructively says, curse God and die. Uh, And so at the end of chapter 2, he's at his wit's end. God does permit affliction. We also recognise that God does use these things, not only for his glory as it was in the case of Job, but he uses suffering in our lives. So the Apostle Paul, you know, the great messenger of the gospel, he writes this at the end of 2 Corinthians. He said, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me. Well, no one has any idea what this thorn in the flesh is. But it doesn't sound like fun, does it? No. Some of you might be going, actually, I kind of get Paul, you know, listening to Robin a little bit earlier on. She'd probably get the whole thorn in the flesh thing. Three times he pleads with the Lord, take it away. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. God has a purpose in suffering. We need to recognize that. And we need to recognise that the physical and the spiritual are not poles apart, but that they come together. Many of our growth groups have actually been working through uh, a little series of Bible studies called uh, Caring for One Another. Yes? Yes. One of my favourite little quotes out of that is, we need to learn to listen at the intersection between life and the heart. And that is where Satan is at work. And that is where God 
is at work. Listen between the connection, the intersection between life and the heart. How does my heart respond to this? This woman had been enslaved. And the language here doesn't come out so much in the English translation, but the language here is the language of slavery. She is liberated. She is loosed from her bonds. But the mere fact that she is there on the Sabbath is something like a note out of tune. Because what's the Sabbath? The Sabbath is a celebration of what? Liberation. And here you have a woman who is enslaved, who is there amongst them. Verse 16, the language of slavery, where Jesus speaks about uh, the woman who Satan has kept bound, who Satan has enslaved. What we should see is this, this doesn't belong. It's like turning up at a wedding and seeing someone dressed in mourning clothes. It's like turning up at something that was meant to be a great sign of happiness and seeing people in tears. Here you have a woman at a celebration of liberation or what should be, and she is enslaved. She embodies the loss of rest. Her affliction has kept her bound. You can imagine it. The pain. I've had back problems for weeks, not for 18 years. I know how debilitating it can be. Some of you do too. The loss of ability. Just the ability to look someone in the eye. To look someone in the face. Instead of being bent over and looking at the ground. She embodies slavery. Where do we go with this? Scripture tells us that we have things that enslave us too. Our slavery is more subtle. There is the slavery of physical debilitation. And some of us know this. As you get old, uh, the knees don't bend quite as well as they used to. And you get out of the chair and you kind of, mm, yeah, okay. Some of us know what it's like living with chronic illness. Illness of the body. Illness of the mind. Some of us know what age does to us. Our slaveries can be even more subtle than that. We feel this lack of rest, this longing for peace, and we want to fill that void. And so our society has been really good at cramming it full of addictions. So what do we do when we're feeling like we need something? Okay, we, we, we go and watch TV. We go and indulge more and more in computer games. We fill it with food. We fill it with cigarettes. We fill it with drugs. We fill it with alcohol, sex. We work and we work and we work. And we tell ourselves that our significance and our freedom is found in our worth to whoever pays us. We plan our next holiday and our next holiday, our next renovation. We fill the gap. But we don't. Because as soon as you come back from this holiday, it's in the past. And you want the next one. And you want the next one. And you want the next one. We try to fill the gap. We try to fill the void with hunger for other things. Our slavery is more subtle. 
There's also the slavery of just living in a fallen world, what I call the grind. And we know it, don't we? Just another day. If you don't, sorry, you're not old enough. Uh, it'll come to you in time, won't it? You get out of bed and it's another day. And you do it again, you go to bed. That's why bed looks so good, isn't it? It's another day in a fallen world. And that wears you down. That tears you apart. And these physical things, these mental things, there is a spiritual side that underlies, like this woman with this physical ailment that was held in bondage by Satan for 18 years, underneath our addictive behaviours, underneath our craving for significance in all these other things, there is a deeper spiritual bondage that if we're not careful, it can take us over. We get this woman. We look at her. And we can see mirrored in her ourselves. And we look for the paths of liberation. So what options does she have? What options do we have? Well, Luke gives us a couple that are here. Firstly, uh, he gives us religion. Religion is front and centre because where does this miracle happen? It happens in the synagogue. Okay, and we get a reaction from the religious leaders. We see religion at its worst. And now when I'm speaking of religion, can I just say this? Religion is one of the greatest enemies to a true and living faith. Religion will enslave you and crush you. And I'm a pastor saying this. What I want to say to you is don't be religious. What am I? Let me explain. Okay, you could take that out of context. Uh, But what I'm not talking about is biblical Christianity. How does religion work? Religion offers freedom through obedience to rules. And Israel had taken this biblical faith and they were converting it into a system of rules that if I live by the rules, then God will have to bless me. If I can tick the boxes, God will give me rest. Judaism had fallen into this and we see it. This woman is freed from 18 years of oppression and the leader of the synagogue is cranky, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. The synagogue leader said to the people, see the irony there, who's got up his nose? Well, Jesus has got up his nose, but he's not brave enough to take on Jesus. So he tells the people off. He says, there are six days for work. Come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. He's reduced the law to a symbol of oppression. He's reduced religion, Christianity, biblical Christianity or biblical faith, can I say, in the one true God, Judaism as it was then. He's taken that faith and he's turned it into a bunch of rules and you have to obey the rules. And Jesus exposes their hypocrisy. He says, you hypocrites, doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie your ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? The rabbis had worked out what you could and what you couldn't do on the Sabbath. It's okay to water your ox. It's not okay 
to heal a woman held bound by Satan for 18 years. Jesus exposes their hypocrisy. They unbind the the, the, the ox, they unbind the donkey, but they won't unbind the woman. On the day that represents freedom from slavery, if they applied the same logic to the ox as they do to this woman, their ox and their donkey would die. They have turned the religion of faith, the religion of life, the one true God, the relationship that he offers, they've turned it into something that if they applied the same logic would kill all their animals. And Jesus says, you don't do that. You give them water because the Sabbath isn't meant to oppress. But you object that I set her free. Should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, an heir of blessing, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? Jesus rebukes their religion. Religion is not the answer. Religion, not biblical Christianity, but religion in whatever form is all about what you do. And Jesus says, it is never going to give you freedom. What else? Well, the Jewish people, and it's not so much in Luke 13, but it is throughout the Gospels. The Jewish people were looking for a liberator. They were looking for a king who would come in politically to sort out the situation for them. They thought politics might be the answer as long as they ended up on top. And if they had the right leader, one in the line of David, they could kick the Romans out. Then they would have rest. Now, our society is not that much different. We've just had an election, if you didn't notice, uh, where you had a number of different parties offering us visions of how they were going to give us what we wanted in our hearts, which path we would choose. And that's really how political leaders have operated. And you go back in history and you've had people set out a vision for utopia, One of the most significant visions was set out by Karl Marx, this gentleman on the screen. Now, someone said of the Marxists that they love the biblical idea of heaven. You know, perfect justice, no sickness. They love the vision that the Bible lays out, but they just don't want to go through God to get it. So they try and set it up through human systems. But in the name of freedom... The 20th century has shown us that they gave us oppression. In the name of setting right injustice, they gave us the deaths of tens of hundreds of millions of people. The ones who offer utopia build it on blood. But unless you think I'm biased and I'm having a dig at the left side of politics, can I say the right side as you go away from the centre, is even pretty much the same. Instead of working class warfare, they just pick up nationalism or racism. And it's our people, not your people. And they want to put themselves on the top. But politics will not give us the peace that we crave. 
just as before we leave it, a very wise Christian said this, and it disturbs me as I listen to some of the commentary that's out there in the, the press at the moment. Uh, the Lowy polls, you know, the, the Lowy Institute, uh, they do polls into uh, what people are thinking and feeling, and a great proportion of our younger generation is quite disillusioned uh, with democracy. Uh, and they think that maybe there might be other options, uh, such as those offered by Mr Marx, uh, that might be better. Uh, a very wise Christian man said, uh, a human capacity for justice makes democracy possible, but a human inclination to injustice makes democracy necessary. As soon as we start putting people in control to give us utopia, to give us heaven on earth, without going through God, everything falls apart. So what other options do we have? Well, we have Jesus, don't we? Jesus doesn't come in and apply religion. He doesn't offer political freedom. But he comes in, takes the initiative. He calls the woman out. She doesn't come to him for healing. He calls her out. And he speaks to her and he sets her free with a word and with a touch. 18 years of slavery and he delivers her. He grants her the blessing promised to Abraham. And we see the same with us. That he took the initiative. He sought us out. But it was more than just a word, more than just a touch. Philippians 2 tells us that the Lord of all took on the nature of a slave. And being found in the form as a slave. And the Greek word for servant and the Greek word for them the same kind of idea they are the same word Jesus becomes a slave with all the limitations of being found as a man expressed he experienced our restlessness our fatigue our pain our grief Jesus stood at the tomb of a friend and wept he sat at the well at the end of a day, exhausted. He knew what it was to face pressure and have to just get away, as he often sought time alone in prayer. He knew the grief of Jerusalem as he wept over that city. He knew fear and pain. And he submitted himself, Philippians 2 tells us, to the slave's death, to death upon us, upon a cross. And then he rose, as we sang. He rose victorious on that third day, breaking the chains of sin, of death, of evil. Jesus comes to offer liberty. Liberty that surpasses anything this world can offer. The world's answers will only enslave, but in Christ, we can find true freedom. So what, what do we look for? Because Jesus himself, he promises this. He says, come to me. This is one of my favorite verses. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. Anyone here fits that? I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. 
For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus says, come to me. And to make that possible, he came to us. And as he called out the woman, so he calls out us. And as he delivered her, so he can deliver us. But there's a sense for those of us who've put our faith in Christ, where we don't quite experience everything that Jesus seems to have promised. And so it leads us to the two little parables at the end. When will it come? What will it be like? When will we see it in its fullness? And Jesus gives us these two little glimpses. Look at them there. Jesus says, what is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? It is like a mustard seed which a man took and planted in his garden. It grew and became a tree and the birds perched in its branches. This seemingly insignificant little seed becomes a tree that attracts the birds of the heavens. Jesus is reassuring them, this may look significant, insignificant. He's just a Galilean peasant, a nobody from Nazareth. But we have seen this parable enacted over 2,000 years of history as the gospel has gone out and billions name the name of Christ. And I look around and I see the birds of the nations resting secure in the tree that is the kingdom. Jesus is reassuring them, and we have seen it, that this insignificant start, this one man dying and rising, brings blessing to the nations. And then he gives another little parable. He says again, what shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked through the whole dough. Jesus is saying the kingdom is not a revolution that comes and imposes order from the top down. Jesus is not a king who comes to sort things out with the sword. The kingdom is like yeast. Tiny little bit mixed in amongst the dough. Leavens the whole lot, makes your bread rise if you're not a baker. It's not a revolution, but it is a transformation. Jesus says it looks small. It looks insignificant, but it changes things completely. It transforms individuals. And as you grow in Christ, you will know more and more and more of the rest that he promises. As you grow in his grace, in his love, you know the freedom that he offers. As a hair commercial once said, it may not happen overnight, but it will happen. Jesus' promise is that the kingdom will transform you individually. It will transform societies. And ultimately, at his return, everything will be made new. Let's end with this vision taken from Revelation 21. This is the rest that he promises, the rest that we glimpse now, that we know in part, but we have surely, that at the end we will have in full. John sees a vision of the new Jerusalem. And he says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, 
God's dwelling place is now among the people. He will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. The Lord Jesus will give us rest. Let's pray. Father, when Jesus frees this woman, 18 years bound in slavery, Father, he shows us of a greater freedom, a greater liberation as he, through his death and resurrection, liberates us from sin, from death, from evil. He grants us rest. Father, I pray for each of us here today that we would have a growing sense of the rest that we have in Christ. The finished work that he has done. The fact that we need not strive but we are heirs and loved, part of your family through the grace that you have given us in his name. Father, I do pray this morning for any who do not know this. Lord, that by your spirit, you would open their eyes and soften their hearts. Father, by the words of testimony of their brothers and sisters here, they would see more of what you are offering to them in Christ. And Lord, that they may truly know the freedom that is ours. But Lord, we also look and we see that we have in part what is promised in full. And Father, we long for the day when Christ returns and we know that peace in its full. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Mike's going to come and uh, continue to lead us in prayer.